morning. We've been in Philippians for a few weeks, and we're going to continue on. Uh, Nathan made me stick to the plan. I'm just kidding, but I wanted to stick to the plan. And so we're going to be in chapter 2. This morning we're going to read in just a second verses 12 through 30. Uh, we're going to take a couple of weeks on that at least because I'm going to go ahead and apologize in advance this morning that I am not making it past verse 13. That we are going to be in verse 12 and 13 for the entirety of this morning, but we'll be in 12 through 30 for the next couple of weeks. And so if you do not have a Bible, there should be one around you in your, near your pew there. Uh, that's our gift to you. If you do not have a Bible at home, go ahead and take that with you. Also, you can access it by way of your phone. A lot of people do that. However, you are accessing God's Word this morning. If you are able, would you stand for the reading of His Word? Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 30. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they, seek, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Again, I'll remind you that we're just going to be in verses 12 and 13 this morning. Uh, but before we dive in, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the power that is within your word. God, I believe that every time we open this word and look at these pages, that there is life found within, God. God, I pray this morning as we have a, what I believe to be a difficult message, that we would have receptive hearts as your church. Father, I pray that you would speak, not because of me, but in spite of me this morning, Father, and that the words of life would roll over every man and woman and child in this congregation this morning, and we would be blessed, and in turn would bring glory to the God who has supplied us with this word and supplies us with his Holy Spirit now. We thank you, Father, for all that you do for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so, uh, before we begin this message this morning, I do think that there are three categories of listeners for this, mar this sermon, not this marriage, that is in the audience today. Uh, I do think that a significant portion of you, when I preach this message, you will be encouraged, you will be, you will be able to receive it with joy, and you will be able to identify with it that you have done the things that Paul compels us to do in verses 12 and 13. 
I think there is a portion of you in this service who will take what I say and what Paul has said in verses 12 and 13, and you may be offended by it. And you may continue to ignore the message that is there upon your heart perhaps over years. And there is a portion of you who is listening to my message this morning who will hear the words of the Lord, it will convict your heart, and you will respond to the gospel in obedience. Because every time we gather together on the Lord's Day as a church, I believe that we should be anticipating the Lord moving in this way. I believe that when His Word is preached, that this does indeed happen still today. And I believe that there are men and women who are in need of Christ Jesus for salvation and repentance in their life this morning. And I pray that they will be good recipients and responsive to that message. Where we are at in Philippians so far, Nathan has guided us through chapter 1 in the first half of chapter 2. And Paul is uh, in jail of all places, and he's writing this letter to the Philippian church, which he himself has planted. Now, Paul is doing so in a sort of encouraging manner. If you'll compare this to his uh, letters to the 1 Corinthians, the 1 Corinthian letter, or if you compare this to his letter to the Galatians, you'll find that Paul has a much more pleasant tone in Philippians so far with this church. They are doing at least some things right as far as Paul is concerned. And we have a few big verses in first. Uh, first chapter of Philippians, I think verse 6 is a big verse. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 27 of chapter 1, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or in absence, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Jesus, so have the same mind as Christ Jesus. So where we have ventured through Philippians up to this point, Paul is primarily talking about obedience and what the Christian life looks like for the believer, even in the midst of a worldly culture, even in the midst of suffering, and for Paul himself, even in the midst of imprisonment. And we reach chapter 2, where in the past few verses, which we went over last week, verses 5 through 11, we see uh, an explaining of who Christ is and what he has done on behalf of the church. And then in verses 14 through 17, as I read earlier, but I won't be getting to this morning, we talk about what that looks like for the believer. And then we have verses 12 and 13, which if you're just reading it naturally, you'll find that it's a bit of an interruption in the idea and the argument of what Paul is making here. And everything that takes place in 14 through 17 and everything that takes place in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 is dependent upon you understanding and getting right verses 12 and 13. Paul believes that a good theology, which means an understanding of who God is and what he has done in Christ Jesus, means that once we understand a good theology, that our lives will bear a powerful doxology, meaning our worship and the way that we live. And so in verses 5 through 11, Paul lays out a theology of who Christ is. And in verses 12 and 13, those are implications for what our life will look like if we believe that theology. First, we come to the first word, therefore. Therefore means that we have a new idea, but it's somehow connected to the previous information. And so chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, talks about who Christ is, that he is the mediator on behalf of sinful man, and that there is coming a day where every knee will bow to him, Therefore, my beloved. Beloved is synonymous and equal to the church. Language in the New Testament, when writers use beloved, they are talking about the church, who is the bride of Christ, the beloved. 
If you've ever read the book of Song of Solomon, uh, where King Solomon is talking about his bride, it's a pretty R-rated book, uh, he calls her his beloved. That is his love, his church, his bride. And so Paul is speaking to people who are, at least consider themselves, a part of the church. They are his beloved. Now, I have ADHD, and so to prevent me from allowing that to make me go way over here or way over here with the text, I like to be a little bit pointed, and I have four truths that I'll be laying out for you this morning, just found in verses 12 and in verse 13. The first truth is, there is a correlation between working out your salvation with fear and trembling and the act of obedience. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I want you to draw a little connecting line dot between the word obeyed and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul considers that if you are to be obedient in the past and if you are to continue in obedience while he's gone, that you will work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It is connected to obedience. A couple Thursdays ago, Nathan and I got the opportunity, and I don't get to do this very much, so don't think I spend a lot of my time away from the office, but we got the blessing of going to a luncheon for other ministers. And I love to hang out with other pastors and youth pastors. There were several there, so we got in his super cool minivan, uh, which now has a DVD player. And we went to Enterprise, and we, uh, we got to hang out with some ministers at First Baptist Enterprise. And I love books. I mean, I love books. So free books, I can't turn down a good free book. Amen? And so usually when I get free books, they look good on my shelf. Because I actually read the ones that I pay for because i got to get my money's worth. But a lot of times free books, I just like to hoard them and put them on my shelf because they look good. But I got handed this book. It's called The Unsaved Christian. And it's written by a guy who planted a church in Tallahassee. His name's Dean and Sarah, not Dean and Sarah, which is what I thought at the beginning when they were talking about it. And uh, First Baptist Enterprise has preached a sermon series through this book. And it is a, is a book about cultural Christianity and the way that it has invaded predominantly in the rural south, which is where me and you live. And so I'm going to read you a page from this book, and then I'm going to explain why this has so much to do with working out our salvation with fear and trembling. So if you'll provide me about three minutes of your imagination to go on this journey with me, and I think you might find someone you know or yourself in these words. Brad and Sophie Camp are by most standards good people. They do things as a family and try to keep their kids involved in various activities. They are considering trading their SUV for a minivan, something Sophie said she would never do. They try their best to have dinner as a family when the kids' schedules permit it. And when the family dinners actually happen, they always hold hands around the dinner table and say the blessing. Sophie's daughter learned this blessing in her faith-based preschool, where she goes twice a week while Sophie heads to the gym for her yoga class. On Facebook, a recent family photo on the front steps of a church building has more than 100 likes and dozens of comments about their beautiful family. The day before, they had gone shopping to get the girls' new matching dresses for church. The 9-year-old didn't want to match her baby sister, but Sophie told her she could change clothes as soon as they got home. The camps are in their mid-30s, and they go to church only about once every three months because they're just so busy. The extended family on Brad's side has a beach house that they try and get down to for the weekend whenever the weather is nice. It's also a real hassle to get all the kids out the door on a Sunday morning, though miraculously they're able to do it every weekday for school. 
When they were in town, they tried to be at church because it means a lot to Papa and Nana, Sophie's parents. Papa and Nana have been pillars of the church for over half a decade. Church is a good thing in the camp's eyes, especially for the kids, since it is a place where they learn good moral lessons. And when they finally do make it, they admittedly feel good about themselves, and it gives the kids a chance to wear their monogrammed church clothes. Being seen as the family that doesn't take the kids to church would be embarrassing to Sophie's Nana, and the passive-aggressive comments at family gatherings would be unbearable. So even when the camps lived in a different state for Brad's job, Nana would ask Sophie every Monday on the phone whether she took the grandkids to church. It drove Sophie crazy, so now they oblige and they quarterly attend church with her parents. Plus the experience at their church is comfortable. During the worship service, the new pastor speaks for 20 minutes about loving others. Jesus is portrayed as a great example of this since he helped the poor. The pastor doesn't talk about sin, repentance, or the blood of Jesus, but gives a very inspiring message as usual. After church, the camps always head to Papa and Nana's house for lunch, and the kids can't wait to change out of their clothes. Brad and Sophie have found that they fight less if they occasionally give this four-hour sacrifice to Sophie's parents, as it doesn't seem to impact the rest of their normal day-to-day routine. This is the life of a typical cultural Christian family. J.D. Greer, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, wrote a book a few years ago. I have a quote out of that book. It says, Surveys show that more than 50% of people in the U.S. have prayed a sinner's prayer and think they're going to heaven because of it, even though there is no detectable difference in their lifestyle from those outside of the church. Thus, so many people are assured of a salvation that they give no evidence of possessing on the basis of a prayer ritual that they did not understand. And I ask you, from that story, where is the fear and trembling in regards to the camps and in regards to their busy lifestyle that they occasionally make an appearance at church, but it has no detectable difference in their life. And Scripture compels us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Where is the fear and trembling over the state of their souls? Verse 12, the words work out are different from the word work in verse 13. The work in verse 12 is the Greek word katergazome, which is not how you say that, but that's how a good old boy from South Alabama says it. And my Strong's Concordance tells me that it means to commit, produce, to be sure, or to bring to a decisive finality. Verses Uh, Verse 5 of chapter 2, to have the same mind of Christ Jesus. And verses 14 through 17, to not grumble or dispute so that you can be a light that shines in the midst of a a crooked and twisted generation. All of these things, performing the Christian life like that, is utterly dependent upon salvation. It is utterly dependent upon being born again. If you do not have a new heart that beats for Christ Jesus and he is willing and working within you, then you are unable to live the life of a Christian. It is utterly dependent upon verses 12 and verse 13 that you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There is a connection between working it out and obedience. Number two point this morning. Verse 12 also implies that the collective work of salvation and obedience are continual. Continual. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... 
not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Paul definitely forecast a past obedience, a present obedience, and I believe he even implies a future obedience, in that obedience in relation to salvation is not a one-time action, but it is continual. The evidence of your salvation is not rooted in anything in the past, but in your continued obedience to Christ Jesus with fear and trembling, knowing that God is at work in you. And how does one know that God is at work in them? It's an excellent question. When we read verse 13, we see that God is at work in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So how do I know that God is at work in me? Do you hate the sin that you once loved, and do you love the righteousness that you once ignored? Has your heart so been changed that you are no longer even able to find satisfaction in the things of this world and in your sin, but your heart has been made completely new to the point where your hatred for sin is rising and growing with each passing year? That you find it a joyous occasion to be able by the Holy Spirit to cut those sinful things out of your life and pursue the that God has for you? Has your heart changed in this way? Are you continuing to repent? Are you continuing to kill your sin? And are you continuing to detach yourself from the things of this world? The evidence of your salvation is found in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. In that he who began a good work in you is bringing it or will bring it to completion during the day of Christ Jesus. Is God bringing the work that He once did in you to completion? Do you feel Him shaping and changing Him to be more like His Son, conforming you into the image of Christ Jesus? Is He completing the work in which He started? If He is not, did He start it? Did He start a work in you if He is not continuing it? Philippians is a small portion of a greater portion of Scripture that would exclaim, absolutely not. Paul uses 12 to convey that the obedience to the gospel envelops the entirety of who we are. It changes everything. As Paul says in verse 12, it is not restricted to his presence or his absence. Just like your obedience to the gospel is not restricted to your presence or your absence within the church, but it is all-encompassing of every fabric of our lives. There is a detectable difference in someone who has a new heart, who has been born of God in every area of their lives. Because that is the gospel. To stop short of that would be preaching an incomplete gospel. The number three point, looking at verse 13, the will and the work of salvation is of God, but that does not remove the responsibility of men and women. Verse 13. Well, verse 12b, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As I mentioned earlier, the words work in 12 and 13 are a little bit different Greek word. They're very closely connected, but they're not the same. In verse 13, the root word for that word work is energio, which again is how a backwoods southern, southern Alabama guy says it. But energio 
A lot of you guys work at Power South. Maybe you're catching on to that. Is where we get our word energy. It is an activator. It is an accomplisher. That's what that Greek word means. To activate, to work is the proper translation for it, to accomplish. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is the activator. He is the accomplisher. He is the power behind your salvation. Salvation is of the Lord, Scripture tells us, that you are saved by grace through faith alone in the mediating and atoning work of Christ Jesus. That you are saved because you are a sinner in desperate need of saving. And God in His great love and power has sent the Savior Christ Jesus to live a perfect life and to die on our behalf. And we have access to God the Father through His sacrificial death. When we cling to the promises of God and to the person and work of Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior of our lives, we are saved by our faith in Him. We are not saved by anything that we do. However, when your works are placed under the umbrella of God's sovereignty and His work, it assures us of two things. Number one, that we are indeed and successfully saved by God and that He will transform us. And number two, that we do not believe in any sort of easy believism because God expects us to work as well. God works in us so that we work. In Romans 6, Paul says, What are we to do? Are we to continue on sinning more and more so that grace may abound? Absolutely not. You are not saved by works, but you are saved to work. You are not saved by works, but you are saved to work. Charles Spurgeon, who is probably my favorite dead guy, and yes, I do have a list of favorite dead men, He said, although we are sure that men are not saved for the sake of their works, yet we are equally sure that no man will be saved without them. I do believe that the function and the purpose of works in the life of a believer is the evidence that God is indeed at work in us that He has saved us, that He has set us apart, that His Holy Spirit is growing us in maturity over the years, and our lives begin to look more and more like the life of Christ Jesus. And our works are the evidence of our salvation in the sense that we look more like our Father year in and year out. Clinging to empty promises of something that we did in our past is not going to help us in our fight for holiness now. And it's okay to have those memorandums, and it's okay to remember a time when God saved you and moved incredibly in your life. But the power of God is cut short when we do not understand that He continues to move and He continues to save and to make us like His Son. Fourth point that I'm pulling out of the text this morning, your salvation and your continued obedience are for God and His good pleasure. Verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is ultimately for God. And as I said earlier, God did not save us because of anything we have done. God saves us because he is a savior. Because it is who he is. He saves out of the overflow of his character that he is good and loving and righteous. 
And he reaches into the darkness and the brokenness of this world and he saves sinners who are enveloped in this same brokenness and darkness because not because he looks upon them and sees anything attractive about them, but because he in himself is a savior and he will save you and he will promise to make you look more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. He will glorify you in eternity and he will make you spotless and clean and those sins will be wiped away. He is a savior. But God did not save you so that you can look back on your years and see that your heart looks exactly the same as it did when you first came to Christ. His reputation depends on your continued obedience. His reputation depends upon your increased holiness. Now how powerful of a God is He if I say 50 years ago I came to know Him and my life has not changed one bit? What does that do for the reputation of our God? Because the same God who is mighty to save is the same God who is mighty to make you holy. And He will fulfill His promises to you. That if He began a good work in you, that He will bring it to completion over the course of years to the day of Christ Jesus. And you will stand flawless before Him based upon the work of His Son Christ Jesus. God changes your works and He bends your will. Notice in verse 13, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. He changes your works and bends your will so that you can work out your salvation with the utmost fear and trembling. In summary of verse 12 and 13, God wills and works a saving faith so that the nations may praise Him based upon the continual obedience of His people. Let me say that again, because that was a whole lot. That was a loaded sentence. God wills and works a saving faith so that the nations may praise Him based upon the continual obedience of His people. Think back to the Old Testament. What was the marker of God's people? Is that they were a holy nation, a priesthood set apart. That it is the continual obedience of God's people that brings glory and fame to Him and it causes the nation know nothing of God to stop and to look and to say, Oh my, these people are different. They continue in obedience. God is transforming them over the course of a lifetime. They're growing in maturity. This is the purpose of God's work in you. It is for His fame, for His glory, because He is God and He is worthy. And I think when we do not pay attention to the fact that God works in us, and we do not pay attention to the fact that the salvation of sinners is a continual obedience, what we have done is a great danger in the American church in that sometimes we have reduced the gospel to merely praying a prayer and seeing no detectable difference of that lifestyle, no heart change that accompanied that prayer. And we're creating churches filled with carnal men and women. One of my favorite preachers has said that hell will be full of people who didn't cuss and who didn't smoke, and some of which were even baptized. Because none of those are the marker of a true Christian. The marker of a true Christian is that not only did you once obey, but are you continuing to obey? 
Are you growing in holiness and repentance? Is God finishing the good work in which he started? Is God, verse 13, at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure? I've had four children, and they're all walking now. That deserves a praise God. We don't have to carry them anymore. And so I remember about my children, one of the most clumsy stages is when they're trying to walk, right? Because when they get up, their feet always do this. They're always bow-legged. Now, some are more than others. You know, I had John David was real bow-legged. And you're bow-legged, and they're walking around, and they're tripping and stuff. That's the cutest stage. Like, like you could be sitting here watching TV in the couch, and all of a sudden, a little head pops up because they're pulling up on the end table. You know what I'm saying? They're holding on to the end table, and those legs are just shaking. You know what I'm saying? I'm not going to do that motion again for you because I'm going to save you from that. But, you know, the kids pull up, and they're just shaking. And I remember the, my kids doing that. And I remember looking at them, and what they'll do is when they're holding on to that coffee table or that end table, they will reach for their daddy, and they'll, they'll reach for him, and I'm backing away, and they'll reach, and I'm trying to get them to let go. But you know what? They reach, and they reach, and they reach, and then when they realize that they're about to fall, they cling right back to that table. And I'm afraid that many of our churches are filled with people who profess the name of Christ, who at one point in time has caught a glimpse of him, who have seen him as admirable, but when push came to shove for them to follow him, they clinged right back to the world and they couldn't let go. But here's the difference between that awesome illustration and scripture, is that God doesn't want you to learn how to walk on your own, is that God will take you by the hand and he will lead you everywhere that he tells you to go in this life. Everything that he calls you to cut out of your life, the holiness, the painful growth, the places, the far places that he cares that he calls you to preach the gospel to, the uncomfortable situations in your life, the uncomfortable conversations in your life, everywhere that you say yes to the Lord, he will take your hand and take you there. And with fear and trembling, you can work because he has worked in you and because he is continuing to work. This is a hard message. When I was coming out of seminary, they told me that there is no harder place in North American mission field than the rural South. Because the rural South is full of good old boys and good old girls who frequented vacation Bible school when they were little, but their life has no detectable difference from someone who does not know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the reason why I can say such a bold statement is because I am a good old boy. And because I was that good old boy. And there came a point in time in my life where I had to say, God, I am clinging to this world with all that I have. I love the things of the world. I do not love you with my whole heart. My obedience was this one-time thing that I did. I see no fruit in my life, no continued obedience. I'm not able to work out my own salvation because you have not began a work in me yet, God. I need a new heart so that you can begin that good work in me. And if that is you, might I submit to you to say yes to Him. To say yes to everything that He calls you to do. And to beyond a shadow of a doubt, to be sure, to bring to a finality of a decision that you are found in Him. You work out your salvation with fear and with trembling and know that He is at work in you. Because it is only the most important decision of your life. As a matter of fact, 
the whole book of Philippians is dependent upon this interruption that Paul has in verse 12 and 13. Be sure that you are saved. Be sure that God is working in you for His good pleasure because nothing else matters until you get that right. Praise be to God. He is a Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You for Your Word even when it hurts. God, I pray that that Bethany Baptist Church would be a church that welcomes your word, even when it hurts, God. God, I thank you that we are a church that loves your word, that goes through your word. God, and I pray that this word would go from my mouth, God, and it would reach its destination, God, that it would not return void. And Father, I pray that everyone knows that they need a sense of you daily and continually working in their lives, God. Because it is a promise of Scripture that you have began a good work in them and you will bring it to completion, that you will continue to work in them and make them look like your Son, Christ Jesus, God. God, I pray that no one is clinging to a holiness of the past or even a right thing that they said or did in the past, but God, they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are walking faithfully with you because each and every day you meet with them, that you are working within them. Father, I pray that they would be obedient to say yes to you, God, and ultimately, God, I pray that you would receive maximum glory from our singing and the word today. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.